Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you all. Thank you, Sarah, uh, for your uh, reading and prayers. Um, we are going to turn to God's Word this afternoon. We'll continue our series in the letter that Paul wrote to Galatians. And uh, when I hear, I don't know about you, when I hear Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that Sarah read to us, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I can't help but think of Mel Gibson in the film Braveheart. Um, this film came out in 1995, and I'm conscious that this is an old illustration. Some of you weren't even born then and are too young to remember the film Braveheart. Um, Mel Gibson plays the Scottish revolutionary and scourge of the English. Where's you? Oh, Ewan's downstairs, isn't it? He's Mr. Talk about Scotland. How about that? Um, Gibson plays William Wallace. And at the end of the film, William Wallace, it's around 1300 AD. William Wallace, is, he loses a battle, he's captured. And in the end of the film, I haven't shown you this, this picture because it's a bit too gruesome. He's being laid out on the rack, tortured by the English. They want him to recant and uh, state his allegiance to the English crown. And as he's lying there on the rack, William Wallace cries out at the top of his voice, Freedom! Top of his voice. It's a very moving moment. Well, here we are, hearing Paul cry, Freedom! It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Freedom, I think, is quite possibly one of the most uh, important values in our modern world. I, I can imagine our culture being quite excited to hear the Bible say this. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Yay! Our culture wants freedom. But I think how we define freedom in our culture is very different to the way that Paul would define freedom I think we would define freedom, you, you can see whether you agree with me, I, I think our culture defines freedom as the free, basically us being free to do or to be whatever we want. That's really where our society uh, defines freedom. Although, we always put in brackets, so long as you don't hate someone else, don't we? You're free to do whatever you like or be whatever you like so long as you don't hate someone else. Nothing should get in the way of that kind of freedom. No person should be restricted or limited or judged. When we talk about freedom, I think we're saying in our Yorkshire actions, get off, get off me, leave me alone, don't limit my life. We want to throw off the things that we feel would limit us. And I think it's interesting to note that in our culture, I think we always define freedom negatively. The way we define freedom in our culture is always the freedom from something. The thing that might limit us or oppress us. We very rarely define freedom in terms of freedom for something or freedom to something. Is Paul saying here that Jesus came to deliver that kind of freedom? I want to suggest to you this afternoon that deep down in our hearts, if we're honest, I think we all know that if we define freedom as the freedom to do or to be whatever we want, it can't actually work in practice. I, I think in our hearts we know that. 
for one thing, being trivial about it, there are many things in life that compete. Life is far too complicated. For example, we, 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 you, you can't be free. I, I can't be free. I, I certainly can't be free to eat whatever I like and at the same time be free to be fit and healthy and the right weight. <laughs> Those two things compete and somehow, sadly, I've got to choose between those competing restrictions. I can't be free to be whatever I want because those two things would contradict each other. But I think more seriously, total freedom is incompatible with other things that we need. Like love. We need and crave love too. But you can't be in any kind of relationship and be free. You can't say, I just want to be free to do whatever I want. Those, if you've been married for more than five minutes, you, you know that that can't work. It's incompatible. I want to suggest also that f- total freedom is incompatible with healthy challenge. None of us really want to live in surrounded by people who only ever agree with us the whole time. We want to be free on the one hand, but I think we also need direction and perspective from those around us so that we can grow and develop. This is a very confusing paradox, I think, in our culture. I think even parents now often find it hard to challenge their own children because it feels somehow like you're restricting them, curtailing their freedom, breaking their human rights to be whatever they want to be. We live in a society now where some parents don't even like the idea of being gender-specific about their children because they believe that the child should be free to choose their own gender. My point is that our society defines freedom as freedom from anything that would stop me being who I want to be or doing what I want to do. That's the dream. So on the surface, I think our culture might prick up its ears when we read Galatians chapter 5 and listen to Paul. But I want to suggest that what Paul is saying here is much bigger than our 21st century definitions of freedom. I think perhaps the mistake we make is to see freedom as something that is merely external. What Paul recognizes here, I think, is that our larger problem is not actually the restrictions that society puts on us from the outside, but the fact that we're not free on the inside. Paul's concern here is that we're in a kind of slavery to our own self-centered desires. So when Paul speaks of freedom, he's not just talking about the removal of constraints and restraints on our lives. He's talking about something much more powerful and radical, the internal freedom to be who we've been created to be. Jane was reminding me during the week that um, we, we once heard a sermon some years ago at Christ Church Central in Sheffield, uh, by a guy we know as Crofty, Dave Crofts. Um, I'd, I'd forgotten this, but Jane remembered it while we were talking about this this week. And he defined freedom in a sermon by talking about a beautiful fish in the sea. But this fish wanted to be free from the restriction of living in the sea. It's not fair. I want to live on the land like all those other creatures. 
It's not fair for me to be restricted and limited in such a way. For the fish, true freedom is not found in being free from the sea. True freedom is being free to enjoy the sea. You know now that Paul, like Mel Gibson, is in a fight here. And it's not a trivial thing. This is a fight for freedom. The Galatian people that he's writing to are at a crossroads in their lives and there are two competing voices here. Paul's opponents are leading them in one direction and Paul is leading them in another direction. Earlier in our series, I tried to summarize it like this. And um, let me let me do this again. Here we go. Here's what Paul's saying in the book of Galatians. Here, well, here's what Paul's opponents are saying first. This is the way life works. Faith plus obedience equals salvation. If you believe and obey, then you'll be complete. You'll be saved. You'll be fulfilled. Paul's gospel is that faith equals salvation and that salvation, a gift from God, will lead to obedience. Very subtle difference. But it's an important difference. These two ideas represent two opposite approaches to life. Two opposite approaches to God. Two opposite approaches to everything. One says, I'm going to trust myself and my good behavior. It's all on me. It's all about my achievement, what I do. If I want salvation, I've got to earn it by what I do. Paul says, I'll trust Christ. Because actually salvation is all on him. It's his achievement. And salvation is a gift from God that I must receive. Paul's opponents were saying, this is what you need to do to be a somebody. In this letter, Paul is saying, this is who you already are. For Paul, our self-effort represents a kind of slavery, the slavery of trying to be somebody, to earn something, whereas God's grace is true freedom because God sets us free from ourselves to be our true selves. So verse 1 of chapter 5 here that Sarah read to us is the whole culmination of Paul's argument. In fact, you could argue that this verse is the pinnacle of the whole letter. Galatians is basically all about freedom. That's why we call this series Unlocking Freedom. What I want us to do this afternoon is a couple of things. One... I just want to dip into the last part of chapter 4. First of all, um, we didn't read that because the reading would have been like too long. And, uh, and it's also quite complicated. But we're going to dip into the end of chapter 4. And then to close, we'll identify some aspects of gospel freedom, true freedom that Paul talks about in chapter 5. So let me first of all talk about Paul's final killer argument. In this letter, Paul has piled up argument after argument since chapter 3. Uh, I, I know that because I've preached the last three weeks and I've been studying them. Argument after argument, Paul piles up. And here at the end of chapter 4, he leaves his best one, his strongest one, to the end. Why is it a killer argument? The end of chapter 4 it's one of those passages that makes you think, 
what on earth is the Bible going on about here? <laughs> so let me make it simple. The main, the main contrast here is this. Either we can fix it or God will fix it. That's Paul's, that's the, that's the nature of the comparison that Paul makes from verse 21. The way he makes this contrast is by comparing Abraham's two sons. So this is an argument from history. You may know the story. Abraham and Sarah were married and God promised that he would bless the whole world through their children. And they waited 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 and then they waited some more you get the point they'd been to Egypt one time and Abraham had been given a concubine a slave called Hagar and because they've waited so long for God to fulfill his promise Sarah his wife comes up with the idea that Abraham should sleep with the maid to move things along Hagar is young and fertile and she conceives and has a child called Ishmael it seems odd to us but this was more common practice in this ancient culture this, this was a legal way for a wife who couldn't have children to carry on the family line so Ishmael is the son born in the ordinary way as a result of Abraham and Sarah trying to fix things and help God along. Here's Ishmael. But then God again comes to Abraham and says that he and Sarah will have their own child. When Sarah hears this, she basically laughs her head off because she's pretty much past childbearing age and sure enough, God performs a miracle and 14 years after Ishmael has been born, Isaac is born. So you get the idea. Just look with me at verse 23 of chapter 4. Paul's comparing this scenario. Abraham's son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, i.e. in the ordinary way. But a son by the free woman, Sarah, was born as the result of a divine promise. It was a miracle. So here's Isaac. The contrast that Paul's making is either we're going to fix it or God's going to fix it. Now, there's pure genius here in Paul's argument. Why is it a killer argument? Because if you were Jewish... Who would you align yourself with? Anyone who was a Jew would align themselves with Isaac. All of Abraham's good Jewish line was traced through Isaac. The 12 tribes of Israel, Moses, King David, all the prophets in the Old Testament. It's all through Isaac. Any self-respecting Jew would say, I'm a son of Isaac. That's where I trace my line. Ishmael was an outsider. In the end, Ishmael actually came to symbolize the Gentiles. Jews, sons of Isaac. Gentiles, they're all Ishmaels. Think about this. These Galatians are Gentiles. They are technically outsiders. Far away from God. Not really legitimate sons of Abraham. 
Paul's opponents are using this history to beat these Galatians up. You guys are all basically Ishmael's. You're all outsiders. What you need to do to become Isaacs, like us, is to get fully signed up. You all need to be circumcised. You all need to live like true Jews and obey the laws God gave to Moses. We're the insiders, and you need to become like us. The shocking genius in Paul's argument here is that he spins this whole history around and says to his opponents, no, 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 hang on a minute. You guys are the Ishmaels because you're trying to fix things in your own human effort. These Galatians are the true sons of Isaac because they believe God's supernatural promise. They must have been furious. You think you're the sons of Isaac, but instead of trusting God's promises, you're always trying to fix things by human effort. You claim to be descendants of Isaac, but you're more like Ishmael. I want to highlight, we don't want to spend too long on this, but let me just highlight the prophecy that Paul pulls in from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. This is from Isaiah 54, and it's in verse 27. Paul says, for it's written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, break forth and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. You realize that in this culture, shame, the shame of a woman like Sarah who couldn't have children. And the other woman is young and beautiful and capable and fertile And Sarah is old, and relatively she has nothing but her shame. And God comes along, and he looks at these two women, and he chooses to save the world through the barren one. Not the beautiful, beautiful, fertile one. He takes Sarah in all of her nothingness and shame, and supernaturally gives her more than she could ever have dreamed of. More than the young fertile woman had. This section is so strange, but do you see? If salvation is by human effort, then in this example, only the young, only the beautiful, Only the fertile, only the capable can get it. If that were true in salvation, the only way that you and I could be saved was by being strong and moral and competent and successful and capable. If salvation depends on human effort, We need to qualify. That's what Paul's opponents were saying to these Galatians. You're not good enough. You need to do something in order to qualify. The gospel says the exact opposite. When we have nothing to bring, when we have nothing left, when we can do nothing to fix ourselves... God comes along and supernaturally fulfills his own loving promise to us. Do you know what Isaac's name means? It means laughter. Imagine having a son called Laughter. Laughter Jones. Wouldn't quite work in our culture, would it? Do you know when he was born... 
all Sarah could do was laugh out loud. Whoa. All Sarah could do was laugh out loud. And it wasn't this time a laugh of cynical unbelief. It was a joyful, hilarious, incredulous laugh. It says in Genesis 21, verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. What a verse in the Bible that is. This is the killer argument because Paul turns the tables on his opponents by using their own history and their own claims to prove that God can save anyone. Listen, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how empty or guilty or ashamed you might be this afternoon. God gives you his son. Christ himself supernaturally comes to you and to me in our poverty and shame and he gives us everything because he gives us himself. Christ is the ultimate miraculous child who grew up to die for our sins and then to rise again in power. Every promise God ever made to you comes true in Jesus. God gives you himself. So Paul's amazing conclusion here, verse 28. He's trying to pick these beaten up Galatians off the floor. And what does he say to them? His killer argument, verse 28, now, now, today, now, you, dear Galatians, you, brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of the promise. And in verse 31, he includes himself in that. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It's that thought which brings Paul to the climax of his argument in chapter 5 and verse 1. It is for freedom. Freedom! That Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now Paul goes on to develop this theme. And you, you can read these verses at home and understand it. But in our, in our remaining time now, I just want to very briefly zoom in a little on verses 5 and 6. Um, let's read well read from verse 4 actually Paul says you who are trying to be justified by the law you've been alienated from Christ you've fallen away from grace and then he says for through the spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's just think a little as, as we, in, in the second half, about grasping the gospel. I think my batteries have gone. Oh no. It's got a delay. Grasping gospel freedom. I think in some ways Paul's definition of freedom is summed up at the end of verse 6. So I'll put it on the screen. Faith expressing itself through love. 
I think there are two ways to look at that phrase. First of all, I, I want you to get the idea that our faith is activated by God's prior love to us. That's the whole point of the word faith. We believe something about what God has done for us. Faith is activated as we trust him. This was Paul's experience. He says it graphically in chapter 2, uh, verse 20. Um, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His faith was a response to what Christ had done for him, loving him, giving himself for him personally. But then also, this faith has an outward dimension because not only is it activated by love, but it expresses itself in love. In the same way that Christ has loved Paul, it liberates him now to love God and love other people. That's freedom. So here's four things. Freedom, first of all, to change. My point here is very simply that only God's grace shown to us in Christ can awaken within us the right motivation. Here's the thing. The question is not what we do. The question is why we do it. You know the difference between doing something because you have to and doing something because you want to, right? The question here is, is partly about how people change. I don't think Galatia is unusual. Everywhere in society, there's this idea that if people were truly free, they wouldn't choose to be good. So people have to be taught, sometimes even threatened, with consequences. And I, I think this is one of the, 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 the criticisms that would have been thrown at Paul by his opponents. You're teaching people, Paul, that it doesn't matter if they do something wrong. It doesn't matter if they sin or not. You're teaching them that God loves them anyway. That is going to lead to chaos. If you teach that, there's no incentive for them to be good. You're going to create a group of people who are selfish and behave poorly. Actually, when you stop and think about that, what, what that reveals is that we don't actually believe that people will be good unless they're afraid of something. People will only be good if they're constrained in some way. I think there's a big clue to Paul's approach to this in this section in how offensive the gospel was. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says there, Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Why is the cross of Jesus so offensive? I think it's because the cross says that we can't save ourselves, but God can and does save us through his Son. The cross is offensive because it strips us. The reason we get offended by the cross is because we want it all to depend on us. But if we pursue that logically, we'll always be fearful about whether we've done enough. We can't live up to it. 
we'll always be uncertain, insecure. Rules are always imposed on us from outside on the basis of threat. God's grace works from the inside on the basis of love. I came across a college lecturer who gave a great illustration this week. Just think about this. Um, Imagine you took, took a metal bar. You can picture that in your mind. And the metal bar was bent out of shape. And your task is to straighten the bar so it's good again. How would you do it? If, if your life was out of shape, how would you do it? One way is to put the bar in a vice and whack it really hard and bend it back into shape by sheer brute force. But you know what happens, don't you? All the metal fibers inside the bar start to break. And the more you bend it, what happens? The weaker it gets. You bend it again, it's likely that the bar will snap. What's the best way to straighten a metal bar that's bent? The best way is to put some heat into the bar, get a blacksmith, put it in the coals, get the fire really hot, and when the bar is glowing from within, straighten it then, and it won't be weak, it won't be brittle, it won't break, it'll be straight again. What the Galatian opponents of Paul were teaching is, when people go wrong, the way to bend them back into shape is to give them rules and squeeze them back. Paul's way is that we need to know God's undeserved grace. And that needs to make us glow from within. These two approaches, rules and grace, create two different kinds of people. One is brittle, sensitive to criticism, fearful, insecure, and the other radiates joy and love and thankfulness. Secondly, freedom to love. This is similar, in a way, to my first point, but here I mean that God's grace is the only thing that can stimulate the right kind of obedience. We know in life that willing obedience is more valuable than grudging obedience. I know that with my kids. Some of them are here. I know that in work. In a work environment, when people do things because they want to do them, it's so much more energizing than when people do stuff because they have to do them. True freedom is when we're enabled to do things joyfully with all of our hearts because we want to, not because we have to. In the late 1800s, there was a great, uh, a famous British preacher called Charles Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. Some of you will have heard of him. He told a great story. Some of you will know. Um, Because it's made its way into quite a few Christian leaders' books in the last few years. So you you, you might recognize his story about the carrot and the horse. I'm not getting any nods of realization, but maybe you'll know it. Spurgeon says there was a good king who had a vast kingdom And he ruled his kingdom wisely. And one day a humble gardener came to the king's court and presented the king with an enormous carrot that he'd grown in his garden. He gave it to the king because he so loved and respected the king. And the king was touched and pleased 
and could see that this guy was a great gardener from the size of his enormous carrot. And he said to the man, I'm going to reward you with an acre of land so you can grow more excellent vegetables in your vegetable allotment. Behind a pillar in the court, there was a nobleman who overheard this conversation. And he was a horse breeder. So the very next day, he thinks to himself, wow, what a deal that is. One carrot for an acre of land. So the next day, he comes to the king's court with a beautiful specimen of horse. And he humbly presents it to the king. And the king goes, thanks. And the guy waits for a moment. And, you know, you don't stare at the king. And he kind of reluctantly turns around. And the king notices that he's upset. And he says to him, what's the matter? And the guy splutters, but yesterday... Well, the gardener came with a carrot and you gave him an acre. The king, the wise king replied, yes, the gardener gave his carrot to me. You have just given this horse to yourself. Sometimes our best works, our best obedience it's not actually being done for God at all, but for us. We fail to love God for who he is, but rather for what we can get out of him. Religion can be the most self-serving mode of life rather than God-serving. We think we're worshipping God when in fact we're worshipping ourselves. We're using God rather than truly loving him. This is the slavery that Paul's been talking about all the way through Galatians. This is the slavery that our self-centered natures are under. And it's true in our relationships, isn't it? Often we are using one another to get what we need rather than being free to truly love one another for who we are. I was shocked this week to read this quote. One writer said this and it kind of smacked me right between the eyes. You've never done anything for God until you know you can do nothing for God at all and that you are completely accepted in Jesus Christ and you don't need anything from him anymore because you already have it all. The thing is this, God doesn't love us for what he can get out of us. What could we give to God anyway? We can never say to God, you owe me. God loves us because he is free to love us for who we are, in spite of who we are. And it's only because of his prior love for us that our obedience can be true and we can love him for who he is rather than what we get out of him only grace can achieve that thirdly quickly freedom to relax <laughs> I don't know what to call this if I was saying this negatively I would say freedom from perfectionism the big issue in Galatia was the demand that these Gentile outsiders get circumcised like Jews. And Paul says in verse 3, if you let yourself be circumcised, you'll have to obey all the law. And verse 6 is interesting. 
Because Paul says there, for in Christ, sorry, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. They don't count. They have no power. The point Paul is making here, in this context, is that being circumcised can't make God love you anymore. And not being circumcised can't make God love you any less. We're not that worried about circumcision, but I think that brings it closer to home, doesn't it? Circumcision is not our issue, but we still live our lives often based on the idea of our merit or lack of merit. What we do is we, we, we have a nine out of ten day. Did well today. Wow, I feel close to God. I think God must love me more today because I did well. And then tomorrow you have a two out of ten day. I'm not sure if God loves me as much today. When I fail, the point Paul is making here, this is why I think in my life, in our lives, we're so often up and down like yo-yos emotionally. What Paul's trying to say is that God doesn't love us more because we did something great. It's the other way around. The good things that we do actually happen because he loves us first. And when we fail, God doesn't love us less. Often, actually, he's teaching us through our failures to grow. What Paul is urging these Galatians here is to know who they are in Christ. To fill their minds every day with the certainty of Christ's faithful love for them. Paul is trying to remove their fear and enable them to be stable and confident. And that's why I chose the word relaxed. Only grace can give us that kind of stability and confidence in our lives. Lastly, freedom to face the future, a better perspective. Just as we close, I want you to notice verse 5. Here Paul speaks of hope. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await, by faith, the righteousness for which we hope. When we say hope, we mean wish. In the Bible, hope is much more than wishful thinking. When the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something that is sure and certain, our hope. Here's the amazing thing that Paul is saying. If you are trying to earn your salvation, you will always be worrying about whether you'll make it. You wonder whether you have the strength Paul says here that because of the gospel there is a day coming when you will shine like the brightest star in the sky. All your weaknesses will be a distant memory. All your struggles will be gone. Every tear will be wiped away. Every thing that you are so anxious about today, it won't matter then. Every aching sinew will be soothed and you will be gloriously and fully you. In Christ, your destiny is secure. You are safe. You will make it. 
in the gospel, there's always this tension between now and then. Now, today, you are as fully Christ as you ever will be. But it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to live here in this place? You have it all, but it's not fully realized yet. But one day it will be, and you will shine then. Only grace can create the right perspective. Only this kind of security can make you patient and calm as you endure what is often a struggle in this world. I love the fact that Paul uses the word eagerly. Did you notice that in verse 5? Paul says, through the Spirit we eagerly await. Paul was pretty much homeless often sick, heavily criticised, bearing the burden, the overwhelming burden of churches he'd planted and people like this that he loved. And yet he can use the word eager. Paul is full of joy, looking forward with passion and energy. Why? Because he's met Christ. Friends, that is freedom right there. That is freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom to change. Freedom to love. Freedom to relax. Freedom to dream. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from fear. Freedom from performance. Only the gospel can enable you and I to be humble and confident at the same time. Only grace can achieve that. Remember who you are in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery.